Hello and welcome to the Power in the Key podcast. I'm your host, Neil Winterton, and joining me on the line as he does every week, it's Ben Cad. How are you, Caddy? Yeah, going well, Widow. Just, uh, yeah, just enjoying the Olympics this last week. And, yeah, we just uh, commented before about watching a, a young Australian in the semi-finals of the 100 metres, which is a bit unusual um, for us. Very unusual. To, to see that, but uh, no, he gave it a good crack, but wasn't quite... Probably, probably a bit inexperienced, maybe, I think. Yeah, just um, missed the start, didn't he? And he was just on the back foot from there. Yeah, so look, I think he's got a yeah, clearly a bright future ahead. So hopefully, um, yeah, the three-year gap between the next Olympics will probably be perfect for him. Oh, no doubt, mate. And we spoke last week about how much we both enjoy the Olympics. So what over the last week, what's been the biggest highlight from you, whether it be from a from another country's perspective or, or from our perspective? We've obviously been unbelievable in the pool, and there's a couple of uh, girls in particular that have really stood up. But what's been your highlight so far, Caddy, from an Olympic perspective? Well, I think it was um, – I probably had Jess Fox in front uh, for most of the week. I thought, yeah, just her resilience to fight back from the disappointment of the – of uh, the, uh, I think it was the C one or the, uh, the the first event she was in, but uh, come back and and win uh, the, her second event was was brilliant. And I think um, yeah, she's got a a bright marketing future ahead of her. She had the the million dollar smile going, and I think yeah, she'll get plenty of coverage when she gets back to Australia. So no, that was a terrific performance. But I think it was probably just topped today by that uh, four by uh, one hundred medley relay by the girls. Yeah, um, wasn't that swimming. incredible? Thought all four of them just swam absolutely brilliantly, almost to perfection. To Went up by a fingernail, you know, there was basically no margin for error and um, all four of the girls were just um, absolutely incredible. So that would probably be the highlight for me at this stage. Oh, well, Emma McKeon has been unbelievable this Olympics and she's now she's now actually the, the record holder for, for Australians for most medals ever won. She's now on 11 medals. She she came into this Olympics with only four and she she's cracked seven, uh, incredible seven uh, medals just in this Olympics alone. And we've also seen, of course, Ariana Titmus who has won the four medals and, of course, he, her coach, Caddy, just going absolutely <laughs> troppo, just uh, looking like Bodie out of uh, point break. He just, he, just, <laughs> he just lost his mind, didn't he? That was fantastic to see. Yeah, that was great. No, it was uh, certainly went viral. I think right around the globe that one. But um, yeah, I think you know that that particular swim early in the meet. I think really galvanised uh, the swim team in particular, and then you know made everyone here sitting back in Australia certainly um, get right into this whole Olympic week so far. And yeah, it's great to think there's still a, another week to go. Um, hopefully, uh, I'm not sure what our track cyclists are like, but that's always good viewing uh, when they get into the velodrome. And um, yeah. Absolutely no idea what our prospects are. <laughs> no, no, neither do I. Event, but um, generally, we, we fare reasonably well. So hopefully, there's still some more gold um, ahead. It's it's great to see how close all the Australian athletes are. Like you see them celebrating each other's wins. The swim team have obviously been very close, and you sort of compare that to what we saw last night in in the hundred meters women's final, where the three Jamaicans ran one, two, three. I've never seen a more icy sort of relationship between <laughs> fellow. That that was incredible to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, they smiled for the cameras at the end with their flags, but yeah, you can tell straight after the events, um, yeah, there was, I don't think, any love lost between the three of those girls, but um, they'll have to regroup and team up because I'm sure they'll uh, yeah, feature yeah. pretty prominently in the in the relay as well. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they can come back together, those girls. Yeah, you can't imagine anybody getting anywhere near them if they're, if they're running one, two, three in the in the sprint final. So um, yeah, another week of the Olympics, Caddy, which is great. We'll obviously touch on, on the basketball perspective uh, a little bit later, but it's been a very big week since we last spoke. We've had some trades. We've obviously had the draft and, of course, the Olympics. So we'll kick it off uh, talking about, well, probably the biggest news, I, I'd, I'd argue, Caddy, was... Uh, the LA Lakers acqu- acquiring Russell Westbrook in a trade that, uh, with the Washington Wizards. They gave up Kyle Kuzma, Montrezl Harrell, 
uh, Contavious Colwell Pope and the number 22 pick in the draft to acquire Westbrook. And now, incredibly, j- just the, the salary alone for Westbrook, LeBron, and Davis is 120 million just for those three players. Uh, and the salary cap's only 112 million. So they're already $8 million over the salary cap just through those three players alone. So, did you like that trade for the Lakers, Caddy? Do you think it's good for them to bring in, obviously, another star player? Um, the biggest question mark obviously has to be, you know, Westbrook's ability to be able to mesh with LeBron. I think uh, the best way for success uh, in the certainly in the recent, um, the most recent past has been uh, surrounding LeBron with as many shooters as possible, and that that's clearly Westbrook's biggest downfall. So, do you like this trade from a from a Lakers perspective? Been a really interesting moment for that point because, as you mentioned, you know the the formula generally has been yeah for that as many shooters as possible around LeBron. So. Yeah, now you put Russell Westbrook in there, who's you know, clearly not a uh, an elite outside shooter, and LeBron, uh, as much as he's improved in that area of the game, isn't you know his best quality either. So yeah, I think they've you know certainly changed the way that they're probably going to play. I think it's a, a great move from a regular season point of view because I think um, you know we've all seen the way Russell Westbrook attacks the regular season, and I think that will bode really well for the Lakers in terms of being able to you know give LeBron and AD you know some additional support you know through the through the longevity of that season, but I think when the you know when it gets to nut crunching time, as you say, I just don't know how this is you know going to be a, a formula for success. I I'd, I'd even probably just fall short of calling it a big three. Really, um, uh, I think Russell Westbrook, as much as his numbers still look, look fantastic, I, I just don't think he's at that really elite level um, where you know you could classify it as a as a legitimate big three I, I mean clearly from a salary point of view there's there's not too many guys earning more money but um you know, I just think in terms of his output and playoff record uh, at this point it, it, it is an interesting one that they've made this trade because they have given up obviously so much of their depth that they did have and they still have the ability to bring back Taylor Horton Tucker as well and be able to re-sign him or you know there's been some talk around Buddy Heald, who was mentioned with a similar package to what they end up getting for Westbrook, but they could still, you know, do that in a sign and trade if they do re-sign a couple of their um, their free agents. So, so yeah, Westbrook. I guess the biggest question mark, and you brought it up there, is his ability to be able to perform in the playoffs. Now, nobody can question. You know, he, he plays with his foot to the floor right throughout the season, and I agree with what you said there. I think it's going to be really good for them during the regular season. LeBron, you know, can certainly take some nights off, and Westbrook can really push uh, the Lakers along in those nights where where either LeBron needs to sort of take a little bit of a backseat or, or isn't even out on the floor. But I guess the biggest thing with Westbrook is you need to mould your team around him, don't you? Like, he, he sort of needs to be the centre point of your team. We saw that in Houston. Yeah, obviously, um, Harden was the best player at Houston, but they, they traded away all their centres and went really small to open up the lane for Westbrook. And that's when Westbrook, he started that year really slowly, but when they opened up the lane and, and went small, that's when he started to, you know, he come to his best play started to, to pop up. And then the same last year, obviously Bradley Beal was a better player on the team, but it was Westbrook that was sort of driving him in that back half of the year. Now that's obviously not going to be the case. Any team that LeBron's on, he's obviously going to be the centre point of that team. So that's got to be the bi- the biggest question mark for me. How can Westbrook fit in to a team that, that's led by LeBron? Can he be as effective when he isn't sort of got the ball in his hands as much as he would traditionally like? Now, now the Buddy, the Buddy Hield aspect of the thing is a really interesting one for me because from what you can understand with all the sort of rumours that are floating around out there, they were very, very close to getting that deal for Heald, and they were only going to have to give up, give up Kuzma and Montrezl Harrell for, if the reports are correct, meaning they could have had Heald. 
and still had KCP and that 22nd pick. So they could have either held on to KCP and drafted somebody with that 22nd pick or used both of those assets in a in another trade to get somebody else in. So they've basically – the cupboard's very bare as far as them having any assets to be able to add to, to their roster – what would you prefer, Caddy, that they went down the path of Westbrook or do you think Buddy Hill would have been a better acquisition for them given that he's one of the best shooters in the NBA? Yeah, I probably think the latter. I think they could have probably been able to link in the present with the you know longer-term view if they had made that Buddy Hill trade. As you mentioned, they would have hopefully been able to still keep, keep their first-round pick that uh, number 22 selection. So at least they would have been able to you know bring in a, a really great offensive player and shooter in Buddy Hill, you know, be able to still keep keep that draft pick and, and sort of still sort of have an eye to the future while LeBron and AD are still in the team. So it feels like they've kind of, you know, put their chips all on the table once again because, yeah, there's, as you mentioned, there's not a lot of draft capital left in the cupboard or any else, any other trade assets. Cole Kuzma was really that, that key piece that they had left from all those um, years where they were struggling. So, you know, you look back down for all those horrible years they had where they basically brought in Monzo Ball, Cole Kuzma, Julius Randle, uh, Brandon Ingram, you know, there's none of those guys yeah, left. they're all gone. All. Jordan Clarkson was another one. So, yeah, they've pretty much ditched that whole, you know, effective, effectively that whole rebuild. And really, all they've left with is LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and, and whatever um, Russell Westbrook has got left in the tank. And, you know, we know he's a super-duper athlete. Uh, no one can question um, any of that at all. But, it's yeah, it's just how he can sort of complement winning and whether he is prepared to fall into whatever role that the LA Lakers general management team have envisaged because they must have a have a, a ways forward that they think this can, can work. And unless it's, you know, I'd be surprised if it's going to be a part of a, a further deal that another team would then take on Westbrook. It seems like, you know, this is the player they've gone after and, and they, you know, pretty much emptied the cupboard to get it done. They certainly did, and there's no doubt that they don't do this deal without LeBron's blessing. So the reports are that LeBron, Westbrook, and AD had a meeting a couple of weeks ago, sort of hashed it out. How would this work? I think Davis has, has put his hands up. He's, he's prepared to play the five a little bit more, which he's been a bit reluctant to do so, even though that's the, the lineup they go to you know, in the playoffs and late in games when they need to put their best lineup out there. And LeBron's also said that he's more willing to play the four as well, which he has resisted for whatever reason throughout his career. So these guys are sticking the hand up, obviously realising that, you know, maybe they've only got one or at the max two throws at the stumps to be able to get this title before LeBron's run comes to an end. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I certainly would have preferred from a Lakers perspective to go down the Buddy Hill pass, get, give him a little bit more shooting and still have KCP to either stay as as a, as a rotation piece or use um, – with that 22 pick to get another good player in. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really fascinating sort of mix to see how it does come together and whether it's a ultimately they're only going to be judged by if they win a championship or not. So if they can win a championship, everybody needs to shut up. If they don't win it and they fall short, I'm sure everybody's going to look back on this day and say, well, they, they, they've made the wrong move there. Just quickly from a Washington perspective, how, how do you think this sort of sits for them? Obviously, there's the rumours that keep circulating about Bradley Beal, whether they're going to trade him. Beal's come out recently, not himself, but, you know, they, they sort of talk to people through the media and it's filtered out that he's he's certainly, you know, more than happy to stay after this trade. So now that they've added Kuzma and Harrell and KCP and, you know, th- these guys, some good rotation pieces, do you think that makes them a better team because they're a little bit more deeper? I think it does. I think it makes them more of a, more of a complete team. I think, you know, 
obviously having Westbrook and Beal in there was fun, and, and you know, they, I, I think in the end did a re- really reasonable job, or more than reasonable job, you know, getting themselves into the playoffs. But I think this now fills their um, their roster out, you know, much better in terms of the overall depth of it. Because as we mentioned, you know, he's still got guys like Thomas Bryant to, to you know come back in, who was injured for the majority of the year. They're getting you know a good young centre in Daniel Gafford as well. So Montrezl Har- Harrell could potentially still play that bench role. KCP and Kuzma, you know, playing then alongside. Davis Bertard, so they've got plenty of shooting, really Hashimura as well. So I think they've you know got some really good young pieces there to to be a, a more even team and, and allow Bradley Bill to be the focal point uh, once again uh, moving forward. I think one of the interesting parts of this trade for, for it to actually have happened was they effectively had to talk Montrez Harrell into opting into that. Yeah, that was interesting, salary, yeah. Salary and there was yeah, a bit of uh, talk around the fact that he is a clutch client as well and whether basically as part of all that, you know, it, it was uh, him picking up that option and allowing the Lakers. Do you reckon to, he could have got more yeah. on the open market? Yeah, look, I think um, longer term money he could could have, whether he could have got more than the nine or ten million dollars annually, but I think certainly he could have, you know, probably got the extra couple of years, you know, whether you know he could have got a twenty four million over three or something like that. Um uh, but yeah, I think had he have had a better playoff series, he, he clearly you know, he had his challenges and almost fell out of the rotation in a sense uh, late in the season for the Lakers. I don't think that helped his overall cause, but his regular season numbers are, are really good and he, and he plays with good energy. And I think, you know, he, he, he can become now more of a veteran presence on a, on a, what is going to be a much younger Washington team. I think, you know, whether he sticks sticks there or gets moved on again, but um, he's got certainly plenty of value. And with KCP, Kuzma himself, and as I mentioned, the other uh, parts that are already there in Washington, I think they would feel reasonably comfortable that they could make their way uh, back to that bottom four of the of the Eastern playoff picture. Yeah, well, hopefully, and hopefully for Montrez Harrell's uh, sake, he doesn't sort of suffer a, a, a bad injury and end up missing out on on that money that he could have signed for this year. I'm sure he, I'm sure he'd be kicking himself, obviously, if that does happen. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Washington do start the season because if they start it a little bit slow as they did this year. No doubt those bill rumors are going to persist, and he's certainly the the, the hot ticket item that every that every uh, NBA franchise is looking at as, as a guy that they would obviously want to get uh, across to their franchise. Uh, one of the other big trades that did take place was between the Pelicans and the Memphis Grizzlies, in a little bit of a surprise one, I suppose. Uh, the Pelicans acquired uh, Jonas Valanciunas in pick seventeen, and Memphis got Stephen Adams, uh, Eric Bledsoe, pick ten in the draft. They ended up taking Zaire Williams, which. You know, n- neither of us, Caddy, are draft experts, that, but that was seen to be a little bit of a reach and a bit of a head-scratcher given that a lot of guys, a lot of draft experts thought that he may have been available at pick 17, which, you know, they made that swap to make sure they get that play that they want. They also do receive a future first, a 2022 Lakers uh, pick, which is top 10 protected. So what about that deal there, Caddy, for you? We'll, we'll talk about it firstly from a, from a Pelicans perspective. Obviously, last year um, they had a really... A disappointing season, I'd suppose, or you you definitely say that Stan Van Gundy did get fired. You know they've got plenty of offensive firepower with with Zion and Brandon Brandon Ingram. So, do, do you think adding Valanciunas, obviously he's a he's a much better shooter than Adams, so we'll certainly spread the floor floor a little bit more for Zion. But do you think they needed to add more offensive firepower, or do you think maybe they should have, you know, either kept Stephen Adams or maybe gone for a bit more defensive minded center? Yeah, look, I don't mind the trade for New Orleans. I think the ability for them to get off that you know large amount of money that Eric Bledsoe and Stephen Adams were going to make heading into next year was which you know, they was, did sign. They signed Stephen Adams to that two-year, thirty-five million dollar extension, which was a bit of a head scratcher at the time, wasn't it? 
That's right, and I think you know, I think in hindsight for them, I, I'd imagine they'd probably realise that that probably wasn't the, the best decision. I think you know, their, their head was probably in the right place in terms of trying to surround Zion Williamson with a you know really high level veteran uh, presence in the centre position. But I think yeah, the, the contract itself was probably a bit of a disaster for them in terms of um, heading into next year's money. So they clear out you know the nineteen million dollars Eric Bledsoe was earning uh, going to earn and the Stephen Adams seventeen million dollars. Um, yeah, I think that's that's certainly a win for the money in 22-23. So um, they've got Valentinus under contract just for, for one year going into this year, whereas yeah, Adams and Bledsoe have money for this year and you know similar money again for 22-23. So they were able to clear the decks a little bit there. Um, and I think this is just a bit of a precursor for a bit of a reshape in uh, New Orleans. There's you know, really strong talk around Lonzo Ball probably not being there heading into next year. There's you know Chicago Bulls, I understand, are right into, into Lonzo. So yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a reshape and um, having a bit of a different look at, at their roster in terms of, you know, just repositioning a few of their players and probably particularly Brandon Ingram uh, being able to probably free himself up a little bit more offensively as well. So they have, you mentioned there, Lonzo Ball, their, their free agent. They've also got Josh Hart as a free agent. So they, they've opened up a little bit of cap space. Now they can extend Valanciunas if they want to, but the, the strong rumour is that they're very keen on getting Kyle Lowry across and, and the money that's been sort of bandied around for Kyle Lowry, we're talking, you know, upwards of $25 million a year over a three-year contract. Now, Lowry's 34, I think. I haven't got his age in front of me, but I believe he's around that age. Do you, do you like the, or Would you be confident or comfortable paying a six-foot guard that sort of money? Do you think people are just getting a little bit sort of carried away with what Chris Paul was able to do for Phoenix Suns and, and trying to replicate that. I mean, Kyle Lowry's a very, very good player, but he's certainly not at the level of, of Chris Paul. So I, I would think that would be a bit of a, a mistake, certainly from a New Orleans uh, perspective. We've we've read this book before with the Pelicans, haven't we, where they tried to sort of push the, the fast-forward button a little bit too quickly when they had Anthony Davis, and it ended up blowing up in their face because they, just, they didn't quite get it right. I'm very fearful that if they do get down this path, let Lonzo ball walk and Josh Hart walk and bringing Kyle Lowry on big money when he's at the end of his career that we could be seeing the same story again. Yeah, well, I think if, if it does go that way, Kyle Lowry should certainly be sending Chris Paul a Christmas card because, I, you know, that, that sort of performance that we saw from Paul is, you know, probably upped Lowry's stock inadvertently because, you know, I think we, we probably would have, you know, envisaged him certainly signing a big contract maybe for one year. Um, but yeah, the fact that you know he might be able to get himself a longer-term deal for two or three years and really big money, I think he would want to certainly attribute some of that to the success Chris Paul had in Phoenix with a young side. And I suppose that's where uh, New Orleans are probably looking at it to surround Ingram and and Zion Williamson in particular with uh, that veteran presence in you know whether it is Kyle Lowry and Jonas Valanciunas. So uh, yeah, it'd be quite fascinating to see how that uh, plays out. But I think yeah, they're they're going to look like a very different team to what they rolled out uh, this season. Well, it certainly looks that way. What about quickly, just from a Memphis perspective? Now, they made the playoffs last year in a tough Western Conference, obviously knocked out Golden State in that play-in tournament. Now, it's a little bit unusual to see a team that makes the playoffs, and they're very young, let's not forget that, but they're, they're basically taking a step back. You, you can't dispute that. I mean, you, you hear people that, that know Memphis and, and watched all their games saying that you could argue that Valanciunas was their MVP throughout the season. He's not their best player, but he played you know nearly every game and, and, and performed for them night in, night out. So it's it's interesting to see a team like that take a little bit of a step back, move themselves up in the draft, get get a little bit more draft capital going forward. That they're, they're sort of playing the, the opposite, aren't they, I guess, of the Pelicans who are trying to fast-forward that projection where Memphis are happy to play the slow game. 
Yeah, look, I think with Memphis, and maybe this is, again, trying to open up some more um, opportunities for Jaron Jackson Jr. in that centre position. You know, they can obviously play Stephen Adams next to him or play Adams off the bench in more limited minutes. But obviously with Valentunas being such a no-offensive force and, and, you know, clogger of the lane almost as well, maybe they're looking at it just to try and open up some spacing for uh, for Jaron Jackson Jr. in particular. So, yeah, look, for, for Memphis, they were the ones that I found, you know, when, when the trade came through, I was you know, quite surprised. I thought, with, you know, quite a successful season they did have. I, I thought they would have been well within their rights just to run it back and, you know, just you take Jonas Valanciunas with his um, expiring contract into next year. And, you know, if it wasn't working out, you certainly would have been able to flip that um, throughout the season. But now you know, it's good to have some backup there with Bledsoe, some experience there to, to put around Jay, uh, Jay Morant. But They'll probably you know, move I'm, him, won't they? I think there were some reports they're looking to move Bledsoe or, or, you know, he wants to be on the move or something. Yeah, look, that wouldn't surprise me. He's been a, you know, been a bit of a journeyman as it is, but you know, I just don't like the fact they're having to pay both Adams and Bledsoe through twenty twenty two and twenty three. Uh, but obviously, you know, with a lot of their star players probably on rookie type salaries, they can afford to wear it. But yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a nothing trade for me, looking at it from the Memphis point of view, other than hopefully just providing some greater opportunity uh, for Jared Jackson Jr. Now, there's a few other minor trades that, that took place. Ricky Rubio has gone to Cleveland um, from the Timberwolves for Torian Prince and a second-round pick. Derek Favors has gone from Utah to OKC. This is basically just a salary dump because they're going to have to look to re-sign Mike Conley, who's looking at the, the numbers that have been uh, bandied around are around three years and $75 million, which is a lot of money for Mike Conley at his age. Uh, we also saw a three-team deal where Tristan Thompson went to Sacramento, DeLon Wright to Atlanta, Chris Dunn and uh, Bruno Fernando went to the Boston Celtics. And then, and then the other one was uh, Boston getting Josh Richardson in the remainder of that trade exception that they did get from the Gordon Haywood deal last offseason. Um, and Dallas uh, received Moses Brown just to make the, the money. I think they had to get rid of Brown to get Richardson in there. So out of those sort of minor deals, Caddy, which one sort of intrigued you the most? Oh, look, I think it was the salary dump from Utah, really. It really they showed their hand, I think, in a sense, with the as you mentioned, the free agent extension or free agent signing they're going to have to do with Mike Connolly. So, yeah, I think it's a, a bit of a shame that they've had to, you know, be forced to basically move on Derek Favors for nothing, really. They gave up a first-round pick just to get him off their books. So it, it did certainly, you know, suggest that they're trying to free that money up for the Connolly uh, re-signing. So, yeah, there had been some talk around Utah potentially even dangling Joe Ingles or someone like that out. Uh, for a potential, you know, late first round pick or something like that again, just to try and get off a bit more money. But yeah, hopefully for Ingles' sake, he can you know stick out uh, for this last year of his, his contract. But um, yeah, certainly Conley's the guy that again probably that smaller point guard type player that generally aren't in fashion when they get up in their um, early thirties. But it, it, it's a bit of a, a swing back towards the, the little guys here, and um, yeah, they're all going to get paid and for for longer term money, which is quite interesting. Now, I said a few weeks ago, talking about Conley, I think it was when Utah, Utah got uh, eliminated that I thought, I, I, I threw the question to you. I said, what would you be comfortable paying Conley? And I, and I threw out, I think it was three years and 70 million. And you, you almost had a heart attack at that figure. And you said, <laughs> oh, there's no way I would pay him that sort of money. So, you know, it, it's interesting looking at that he's going to get three years, 75 million. It's, it's, I think you mentioned there, it's probably the, the halo effect of this Chris Paul sort of run that he had last year and now everybody's falling in love with the older point guard who can play that uh, that sort of mentor role, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I think with the injury history, with Conley in particular, was part of the reason why, you know, I would have been playing that a bit more 
cautiously, but um, clearly they they really value him and obviously like the fit alongside Donovan Mitchell. But yeah, it's a, it's big money to to invest, and again, if you're having to offload, you know, basically your backup centre just to you know just to be able to fit it all in, it's um you know starting to to tread a little bit dangerously and, and way less margin for error as the as the season goes along. Yeah, it certainly is, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that all shapes out with with the, with the free agents and and you know what what sort of money they do have to pay Conley to keep him because yeah, seventy five million. I said seventy, and I thought that was going that was being generous, but what's an extra five million between friends? I, I suppose, hey, Katie. <laughs> well, uh, the other one I was going to mention with the with the trade was the um, just the Detroit Pistons having another nightmare here with um, <laughs> having to basically shift off Mason Plumley, who they only just um, re- uh, signed as a free agent last year, I think it was, and effectively gave into Charlotte um, and to move down 20 picks just for the right to do that. So um, not great business again by the Detroit Pistons. So a bit of a shout-out to their front office once again. Yeah, and that's the second centre because it, it mirrors exactly what happened with Derek Favors. So I think the lesson to be learned from last season off uh, last off-season caddy is don't pay your backup centers ten million dollars a season because once you once you sign that contract you're gonna have a bit of buyer's regret from what we've seen um, so far in this off season. Now, obviously, the other big news uh, throughout the week was the NBA draft, and you know it's, it's always interesting. Caddy, it goes for about four or five hours, and uh, you sort of I didn't um, I haven't watched a lot of it. I generally will I generally do watch it all, but I, I didn't have the time on Friday to be able to watch it all. But the top five picks were uh, Cade Cunningham to Detroit. Jalen Green to Houston, Evan Mobley, Evan Mobley to Cleveland, Scotty Barnes in a little bit of a surprise to Toronto at four, uh, Jalen Suggs, who we thought was probably going to go at pick five, did go at pick four, sorry, to Toronto, went at pick five to Orlando, and you've got to shout out the, the Aussie uh, caddy, which is, again, a little bit of a surprise, Josh, Josh Giddy to the OKC Thunder at, four, at pick six. Uh, what did you like about the draft, caddy? I mean, as I said earlier, none of us are draft experts, but was there something that caught you eye, caught your eye on draft night? Well, I think uh, just the, the the televised version of the or the broadcast of the drafting is an interesting thing for me because it's become almost hard to watch the draft when you're also watching Twitter because Twitter's releasing everything. Yeah. You know, a couple of minutes. They've got to do, do something about that, don't they? Yeah, well, it's sort of taken it's taken too much away from the actual broadcast, and it looks quite ridiculous when pretty much everyone else that's not in the room know what's going to happen sometimes two or three minutes prior to what even happening. And then trades are getting basically released and announced, and the guy gets drafted, and we know he's not getting drafted to that team, but they're pretty much going to go through the, the pageantry of you know, giving the hat, and you know clearly we know he's not going there. So I think they've got some work to do just around how they manage, obviously, whoever's and there's not just one team; it's every team that's getting, um, you know, leaking the, the picks out to whether it's Shams or Woj or whoever else it is, because yeah, they're getting the information two or three or four minutes um, before you know the broadcast is able to, you know, obviously show the draft in its entirety. So it's actually taking away, I think, from from, from viewing the draft. You, you're better off just sitting on your phone, scrolling Twitter, you're getting all the trade updates as they come and the picks well and truly before they're getting announced. So from that point of view, I think, yeah, there's some work to do just around how, how we actually consume the draft going forward. Uh, in terms of, yeah, that top five, I think, obviously, for me, the clear the clear surprise was probably Jalen Suggs, you know, sliding down to five. He was probably, of those top players, the one I'd probably spent the most time watching. Um, just basically, historically, that Western Coast Conference where he plays for Gonzaga, who's in the same division as St. Mary's, and, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years, there's obviously been so much Australian talent going through that program, you know, you sort of became used to watching 
St Mary's and Gonzaga and um, BYU and a few of these other teams. So Suggs was a part of that really successful Gonzaga program. Corey Kispert was another guy that was drafted in the lottery that um, played in that team as well. So he was slid down to five, and I think Orlando was at you know, in the end a really perfect fit for him to sort of join a, a, a young and re, uh, rebuilding franchise. And I think you know, he'll fit really nicely alongside some of their other young pieces. So, yeah, Josh Giddy again, was um, clearly probably not projected to be going as, as, as high as six. But, you know, I think, you know, what we've all seen, you know, the potentially what Giddy can do, I think he might have been a bit of a slower burn in terms of um, a lot of the draft experts over in the US. But, um, yeah, hopefully there's a, a really positive fit there between him and Gilgis Alexander and, and the OKC Thunder, and, you know, clearly in a really uh, full rebuilding mode. So it'd be interesting to see what type of opportunity um, he does get in his first season over there. Yeah, you'd imagine he'd get, he'd get quite a bit. And it could just be a matter of OKC. They were the team that probably tanked the hardest in the back half of the year, weren't they? They they sent uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander with his mystery foot injury. Uh, he didn't play the back half of the season. And then it ended up sort of coming back and biting him a bit in the ass because they, they were potentially – uh, they, they were close. They could have had Houston's pick if it had to fallen a little bit. They didn't get that. And then their pick fell a little bit to six. So maybe they've gone looking at Giddy, who, you know, we, we saw him in the, in the NBL this year. Now, to me, he didn't absolutely jump off the page. He's not an elite, an elite athlete. Nobody's saying he is, but he, he didn't have anything that's he's, – he's got great vision. We know that. But he's not an elite athlete, not a great shooter. So he could be a little bit of a project, but maybe that's what Oklahoma want, that maybe they want to be ordinary again next year and, and obviously increase their draft uh, odds for, for next season as well. So I guess it's not a huge surprise from that perspective that they did go with somebody like Gideon. Um, it was sort of rumoured the day before Lee Ellis from, from No Dunks, um, the Aussie who's on that podcast, he, he at the end of their show the day before, or the day of, I think it was, he said, oh, I've just got a, I've just received a text saying that uh, OKC are going to be taking Josh Giddy." So I guess it was obviously sort of a bit of a whisper that that may have been the case. So it was interesting to see that that did come to fruition. And yeah, I agree. Orlando with a team, you know, that everybody's sort of pumping up after this draft, getting Suggs, who who was projected to go four to Toronto, who was seen as a really good replacement for, you know, potentially Kyle Lowry leaving. So he, he was seen as a guy that could come in and, and fulfill that role that Lowry had done for a, a number of years so successfully for the Raptors. And then also getting Franz Wagner at pick eight, who was sort of mocked to potentially go to Golden State at seven. So he didn't fall a long way, but it, you know they, they seem to have got two really good players that, that can help them going forward because they they were seen, I guess, as a little bit of a, a boring franchise that they've they've sort of recruited some tall athletic defenders over the years that have either have either had bad luck with injury or just haven't sort of panned out. So I guess it's good from Orlando Magic perspective to see them get a couple of really good, really good players, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that that pick eight was the one that um, Chicago Bulls had to hand over. Yeah, I'm sure that hurt you to watch that. <laughs> absolutely. Well, there's still going to be one more pick to come in, in probably two more years' time, which um, providing the Bulls don't finish in the in the bottom four. So yeah, that's that, that trade's looking worse and worse as it goes. But um, yeah, no, look, it, it it was an interesting interesting draft. I think it was probably overshadowed in a sense by that that Westbrook trade. You know, a few hours before the start of the draft. But you know, once the draft did begin, there wasn't as many. NBA players drafted. There's obviously a lot of movement with the picks, but um, that was certainly the story of the day was the Westbrook trade. And then, you know, a, a couple of surprises there in the top six and the rest of it, you know, probably played out reasonably as expected. I suppose the, the, the big non-trade that didn't happen would have been around the Golden State Warriors and the fact that they did just select, um, you know, the players at pick seven and pick 14 rather than, you know, cashing in on a package, whether to move up 
um, with those two picks or to package them in with a, a James Wiseman or an Andrew Wiggins or someone like that. So they effectively just took those two picks to the draft, which was pro- probably quite interesting in itself because the two players they did draft are sort of more looked at as upside players that might take a little bit time to de- to develop into you know the players that are going to effectively be able to help straight away. So I found that quite interesting considering you know the timeline that we think that Warriors are going to be on going into next season. So do you think they took those two guys, like Jonathan Kaminga, who they took at pick seven, was was he sort of foul, I guess, towards the, the back end of that draft process because there were some question marks about the, the way he played in the G League this year. But leading into that season, he was seen as, you know, even potentially a pick one player. So as you said there, they've gone with a couple of guys who, who have high upside. Do you think they've done that just so they can potentially trade them during the season or early on in the season, whereas they went for you know someone like a Davion Mitchell who's 23, 24 years old. So some teams may look at them and go, oh, we, they're not going to suit us, but they can still look at someone like a Kaminga and Moses Moody, the other guy who they did pick, and sort of project forward and say, well, they've got potential to turn into a really good player down the track. Yeah, look, I think so. Look, I mean, they're still effectively, it's still monopoly money in a sense in terms of those players being so young and, you know, we're not going to see a whole of a lot of them out on the court. So it's depending on what value other teams are going to have in them and, and the same with a guy like James Wiseman. So it's whether, you know, they can sort of fast track the development of those guys to, to fit in with the timeline of Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green and Andrew Wiggins or whether there's, you know, more moves to go. But I, I thought if there was, if they were going to shake it up, they probably would have done it prior to the draft and, um, you know, either moved up to take... Now, whether it be a Jalen Suns once he was starting, once he did slide, or whether it was to you know use those um, picks to try and get a more established player. But it looks like yeah, they, they they're going to bring those guys in into camp and and, and see what they've got with um you know with effectively a couple of development players. Yeah, well, there's no doubt they would have been exploring every avenue to get a trade done. So obviously they didn't like what they could get back for those two picks. So yeah, we'll see if they hold on to those guys or they do make a trade during the season. So we'll jump over now, Caddy, and talk uh, about the Olympics. So since we last spoke, Australia have played two further games. They had a 86-83 Game 2 win over Italy and obviously a very close game. And then last night they had an 89-76 win over Germany. Now, since we since we did speak, I, I brought this up last week that I thought we had an Aaron Baines problem. Well, we no longer have the Aaron Baines problem, Caddy, because he's, he's, uh, he's out of the Olympics with an injury. So... What did you see last night? We'll, we'll touch on that first, Caddy. What did you see last night uh, from Australian perspective with, with the loss of Aaron Baines? Were you happy with the way things pan, panned out, starting Landale and Nick Kay, who both had really excellent games? Now, Australia did get murdered on the glass, and there was a couple of uh, possessions there where uh, Germany had about four or five offensive possessions in a row, and luckily they didn't knock down the shots. But were you happy with what you saw out of that pairing of Kay and Ingles? Uh, sorry, Kay yeah. and Landau? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're two of my boys um, going back to the, the you know that world championship run a couple of years ago. But um, yeah, Nick came to the starting lineup. I thought was a little bit of a surprise. I thought they may have gone with Matisse Thibel and played a little bit smaller. But um, yeah, Kay and Landale certainly you know both offensively played really good, both shooting seven from ten from the field and you know supporting Paddy Mills at the offensive end. So, but as you mentioned, defensive glass was a bit of a, a bit of a problem for them. But I think when we're projecting. A little bit more further out, you know, when you look at a, a team like Team USA, who, you know, as we've mentioned all the way through, are blessed with really great big play, big guys either. So, I, you know, as much as it's disappointing, obviously, for Aaron Baines not to be able to contribute um, the rest of the way here, I don't know that it is such a, 
uh, going to be a big hole to fill because of obviously the opposition, and, and I think it's actually given us a little bit more flexibility with a few of the lineups that we can play. I, I was surprised they didn't play um, Joop Reef um, more minutes than just the seven minutes he got last night. But what did you uh, think he, about those seven minutes he played? I, I thought he. He, he looked pretty ordinary. He, he took a corner three, which didn't look right. He, he looked a little bit – because I, I I thought he looked good uh, during the exhibition series, but I thought last night he didn't look that great. Maybe that's why they didn't give him a few more minutes. Yeah, and I think also the fact, you know, Nick Kay was, was playing so well. So, you know, he shot this – both him and Landale, seven from ten from the field, and Nick Kay ended up with the 31 minutes just to be second in the minutes behind Paddy Mills. So – you know, I think if, if Kay was struggling, we may have seen more of um, Job Reef. But, yeah, Nick Kay just about, you know, well, I think probably been our best big man consistently through the three games. And, and behind Paddy Mills, really, has almost been our, our best contributor. So, you know, I think we're still, you know, so lucky to have a goal like Pat Mills playing <laughs> the way the level he is. I mean, he put up a, a, a massive number of shots last night. I think it was, what, the 23 field goal attempts for the 24 points. So that's not the sort of efficiency that he's going to want. Uh, moving forward, but he still was able to hit a few big threes when it, when we needed them, and clearly still the guy that's carrying uh, the biggest load and the most responsibility on this team. I think you know certainly we're going to need a bit of an offensive uptick uh, from a guy like Joe Ingles. Um, you know Matthew Dell in the Dover is almost a zero on offense these days, so it does put a lot more reliance on a guy like Paddy Mills to continue the shooting. You know the twenty plus points game in game out. Oh, I didn't particularly like the way Paddy played in that first half. No, he's got the ultimate green light playing for the Boomers, and that's fine because of the way he's obviously performed over a number of Olympics. But I thought in that first half he was rushing his shots. He took some sort of ill-advised shots, but his second half was outstanding, especially late in that game where he where was either scoring or he was he was dishing it off for, for, for some easy baskets. So he, he was outstanding in that second half, but I thought his first half left a little bit to be desired. What about from – you mentioned there Della Vadova, and I brought this up last week as well, how much of it – and you, you had said it previously as well, and you mentioned again about how he's basically in a zero on the offensive end. Are you, do you still see that as okay, or do you think it's a concern going forward? Sobey came on last night and actually played really well. I thought now both of us being Melbourne United fans, we're, we're conditioned to absolutely hate Nathan Sobey's guts, so maybe we, we sort of uh, treat him a little bit harshly. But I thought he was pretty decent last night. Do, do you think they need to address that that starting guard role or backup guard role? Or or, or do you think just because Dallavadova's got so much capital with, with uh, the Australian national team that he's just going to continue to play basically regardless of what his output is? Well, hopefully it doesn't. You know, they're not looking at it like that just because he's you know put the time in over the years that he's going to get gifted you know, starting job and, and minutes. But I think, obviously, they like the way he hustles and defence he can bring to the table. But I think I'd rather see some of those minutes shared more with your man Chris Golding, potentially, to give a bit more, you know, offensive spark as well. We know what he's capable of doing um, from beyond the arc when he gets when he gets an opportunity. So, yeah, look, I think, you know, when we get to the, you know, a, a, I'm sure a, a game against Team USA, whether it be a semi-final or a final, and then, you know, that Della Vadova, um, you know, I just can't see how those minutes are going to stay there in, in the in the high teens or low twenties because you know just athletically that those US guards are going to turn them apart. So yeah, I think they've got to probably look at it how they how they do you know share those guard minutes around. Obviously, Thibault has been sitting you know just the nineteen minutes last night. I think there's more opportunity to go for him to play more minutes. Um, Dante Exxon's, you know, obviously the other guy as well. I mean, clearly Josh Green, they've just got no confidence in, you know, giving him it's any interesting, isn't it? significant time. I saw, um, I think it was one of the Dallas beat writers um, had tweeted, you know, quite aggressively in anger almost the fact that he's almost wasting his time 
playing in the Olympics with, you know, obviously so little court time where he could be getting ready to play in the summer league. But, you know, I don't, I don't subscribe to that theory either. I think he's much better being in this um, environment and, you know, having the, the training opportunities and, you know, this Olympic experience rather than just, you know, dribbling around cones and, you know, shooting with the warm-up guys back in Dallas waiting for the summer league to start. So I think they're still certainly benefiting being in the program and, and being around these guys. But, yeah, I, I am surprised he, he, you know, just isn't getting any opportunity out on the floor at all. Well, you'd think he's such an elite athlete and we don't have many of those and that's why Thibel sort of stands out like a sore, sore thumb. So, yeah, I, I have been surprised that he hasn't sort of been given much much of a go. He's pretty much the only guy that hasn't been given much of a go so far, isn't he? So it'll be interesting to see whether we do come up, when we come up against, you know, certainly Team USA that's got better athletes, whether, you know, Gorgian does look to give him a few more minutes against those type of teams. But Matisse Thibel, for me, he's been just been unbelievable defensively, hasn't he? Another four steals last night. Just gets his hands on everything. And, and I said this last week, I still don't think we're utilising Thibel as best we can on that fast break. We need to be able to get the ball in his hands and allow him to use his athleticism, athleticism a little bit more on that fast break and get some easy points for us because he, he he's just not get, getting up and two or three from the field. You'd like to see him get – he's not a knockdown shooter, we know that, but let's try and utilise him a little bit more in the open court. So going forward, Caddy, obviously Australia 3-0 and zero in the pool games. I don't think we know who we're paying, playing next in, in the next round yet, do we? No, a, I don't think yeah. so. No, there's still another game getting played. Well, that's just finished the Slovenia and Spain game. Now, I think yeah. what they do is essentially split them out into two – I think you've got the the three group um, number one seeds plus the best second place going to one box and then the, the next best uh, teams, which America will be part of that, into the other box. And they effectively draw them out of a hat is what my understanding. So um, it's a bit of a, um, a bit of a guesswork at this stage who they play, but I think we'll find out <coughs> potentially later tonight what that um, quarterfinal matchup is. And I, I'm not sure there's a possibility it could be America, but let's God, God only hope it, it's not. But... Um, because um, I think France have effectively gone through um, undefeated, so they'll finish at the top of their pool. Yeah, but hopefully, you know, at least we can avoid the US as far as we can into this tournament. Because I think it, it has shown, and we spoke about it the other week, it's certainly not as not as tough a, um, a lineup of teams as what we're probably used to. So I think it really is only down to four or five teams going into these, you know, uh, knockout games. Yeah, there's no doubt it isn't, and I agree agree with what you just said. It's it's it is probably only four or five teams that that can potentially win it. Now, we'll, we'll we'll move over and talk about Team USA. Now, they've played three games, their three games since we last spoke. They lost game one to France, 83-76, in a game where they put up three or four shots right at the end, which all open shots that they missed and led to them losing. And, you know, the world was ending once Team USA lost. But then they bounced back, not not unsurprisingly, in game two to win 120-66 to against Iran. And then... Uh, last night against the Czech Republic had a, an incredible second half. It was a very tight game in the first half, and they ended up coming away with a 119-84 win. Um, and it was KD that sort of got him going in that second and third quarters. He, you could just see sort of just – he had that look in his eye, just sort of took the game over and, and started knocking down threes. And then it was Jason Tatum that really came to the party in that second half. He, he just caught fire, Cat. He was, he, he was hitting everything in that third and fourth quarters and ended up with 27 points. So – from it, from the Team USA perspective, are they still, for you, the team to beat? Have you got concerns about them? What have you seen from them over their three games? No, look, I certainly think they're still still the team to beat. I'm, I mean, obviously losing to France at the start was an ideal, uh, but I think, you know, they were still, you know, had three guys that 
pretty much just got off a plane after playing a, a pretty grueling um, final series and playoff series um, back in, you know, obviously the NBA. So you know, I, I'd certainly forgive them for for that first game start. And I think they've done what we probably would have expected them to do against Iran and now the Czech Republic, you know, having, you know, massive double-digit um, double digit wins. But I think, you know, they're not going to get judged really until they get probably now into the semi, you know, into a semi-final game you know, whether it is against an Australia or a Spain or maybe France again or, <coughs> um, you know, probably the only one else would might be Slovakia. So, no, I think they're, they're really well-placed still to, to progress, you know, all the way through and um, be certainly the most damaging side from an Australian point of view that we're, we'd be looking out for. And they'd be still, for me, the, the clear gold medal favourite. And the longer they, you know, are, are together and the more games they play, the, the more they're, I think, going to improve um, when they sort of can lock down what they're, you know, what their best rotations are going to be. But when you're getting, you know, as you said, 27 points out of Jason Tatum and KD playing, you know, at the level of the efficiency he did in that in that last game, then they're clearly going to be clearly going to be hard to beat. So I still, you know, I think they've done, you know, as much as, as, as well as they can recovering from that first game defeat. And they've, you know, clearly been the only team in the Olympics that are winning by these type of margins. So I think that's, you know, from them, a bit of a sign of, of the class that they have and, you know, that they're, for me, they're still the, the gold medal favourite. There's no doubt that their best is clearly superior to absolutely anyone else. And we saw that last night in that second half against the Czech Republic where they were just, you know, they couldn't get anywhere near them because they, they just caught fire. They were knocking down everything. So, And it's interesting you brought up the fact that they had the three guys that played in the in the NBA finals where they've inserted Booker and Holiday into that starting lineup after that game one loss. And, you know, Booker fouled out in 10 minutes last night incredibly. But Hol- Holiday's been out. He was their best player pretty much in game one. He was their offensive spark plug that sort of got them back into that game against France. And then I thought he was very good again last night. So it's it's probably no surprise that the, the guys that have played, you know, more recently that they've, they've started to lean upon a little bit. But I still don't – and I brought this up last week that – you know the the best USA teams are the ones that, that play good defense and get in, get out in transition. Well, they they still they did that against Iran in, in a blowout, but they still haven't quite done that. And I think it sort of comes back to the to the way they've constructed this roster. I think if you know uh, Colangelo had his time over again, and I'm sure Popovich was involved in the selection process as well, that they would constructed this roster a little bit uh, differently. I, I look at guys like Chris Middleton and Zach Levine. Now those guys are, just, are, are pure scorers. Well, I don't think you need uh, all these pure scorers on the roster. You've already got Booker, Lillard, and KD and Tatum who who are scorers. So I I I think you know Middleton and Levine are a little bit redundant. And then you know Calvin Johnson and Jeremy Grant. Now I understand all these guys aren't going to get too many minutes, but I don't know what the purpose of those two guys are either. For me, you, you, I think you need to get as some elite shooters on this roster. Now, if you put a Seth Curry or even a Duncan Robinson on this roster, you know, you can't leave those guys open. So, you know, Durant and, and Booker and and these guys command a lot of attention from the from the defense uh, from the defense. And if they're kicking it out to a, a Seth Curry or a Duncan Robinson, that's going to go down eight times out of ten if they're if they're left open. So I reckon they probably needed to bring a few more, you know, knockdown shooters. Where Middleton and Levine are scorers. I don't think they're knockdown shooters. So you bring in some knockdown shooters and then you know, Johnson and Grant, you sort of bring in like a Marcus Smart or a Mikael Bridges, some of those defenders that can that can cause some turnovers and get out into the open quarter. I just think they could have balanced this, this roster a little bit better. What do you reckon, Caddy? Yeah, look, I certainly agree. I mean, I suppose that's where Brad Beal, you know, his role would have been to be that knockdown shooter. And unfortunately for him, he, you know, fell at the last hurdle with, with COVID. So, yeah, but I agree. They could have certainly had the opportunity to balance out 
this roster. And I, it, it is surprising to think, you know, uh, for so many years of the international game, they, they still just effectively try and pick, you know, just the best players that they don't, can. Don't, they, haven't pick, they don't pick role players, do they? No, rather than yeah, pick a team that that's built to win in the international game. So, look, I think in the end, you know, the talent's you know it's still extreme and, and and way better than anyone else has clearly got. You know, when you look at the fact that the Australian boomers are start, you know, might be starting Landale and Nick Kay, and you know, still could be you know, the second favourite to win win the gold medal. You know, if we'd said at the end of the World Cup that we're going to be going into these Olympics still as the second favourite without Andrew Bogan and Aaron Baines, I think we would have been you know quite surprised. So. Um, from that point of view, the boomers are probably going you know, to certainly ride up against it. But, um, you know, I think still the system and the culture um, definitely counts for something. And, and I think that's what we're going to be ro- relying on if we if we are to get the ultimate prize here, which for me, I think would still be a surprise based on the level of talent the US still does have at their disposal. Yeah, there's no doubt you're right. So they, they scored 72 points in the second half. In, in, we're talking 10-minute quarters. So 72 points in 20 minutes of basketball, 72 to 41 in that second half. So that, that that's them clicking and firing on all cylinders. And as I mentioned earlier, their best is better than anybody else, no question. So we made our medal predictions last week, Caddy. We had the same. We had uh, Team USA, the Boomers, and Spain as the top three. Are you still leaning that way? Or have you seen, you know, Slovenia did knock off um, Spain to tonight in, in that last game you mentioned there. Doncic had a triple double. I think he only scored about twelve points though. But are you still leaning with that three, or have you seen one of these other teams sort of jump up that you think might be a chance to medal? Yeah, I think well, France clearly has probably been the one that you know we did overlook when we did those predictions earlier. Obviously, that ter- terrific win against the USA in that first game. They've then you know come through and, and gone through undefeated as well. With really now probably a pretty weak pool with Czech Republic and Iran, but they were still able to beat the Czechs by by 20 points in game two. And th- this is a team that is loaded with NBA talent as well. When you run through the, the roster with, you know, Nicholas Petrin over 48, Rudy Gobert, you know, Frank Nilakina is in the team. You have a Sally, you got Nando DiColo, who used to, you know, obviously play um, the San Antonio Spurs. Um, and then Timothy Luo Cabaret um, well, as you, well. You, so you said it. <laughs> had a go with it. But, um, yeah, so they're clearly, you know, probably as experienced from an NBA point of view as the Boomers. So, Look, I think for me, they're probably the ones that I think I'd probably now have um, in that middle frame, absolutely. And I think we both um, said, yeah, Slovenia were our smoke eater to come through um, as, as a potential I won't, I won't uh, toot my own horn, but I did say France was my smoky caddy. Oh, well, there you go. So um, you had them right in there in the mix. And, but I think Slovenia, can, you think when you look at the roster, it really is just Luka Doncic that is a recognisable name. I think, yeah, they're playing... You know, so above themselves, it's unbelievable. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how they, whether that sort of can translate as the tournament goes longer. It certainly will be. He had, was a 48 points, I think, in his first uh, Olympic game, which is, yeah, just yeah. just incredible in a 40-minute in a game. So, and I think he sat the last couple of minutes, so he could have broken. I think Oscar Schmidt, Caddy, has a record. I think it's 50 points. So he could have yeah, actually right. broken that if he didn't uh, go to the bench. So, uh, yeah, we'll call it there, though, Caddy. So next time we speak, uh, we'll get the result of that gold medal game. So hopefully we're going to cross, keep everything crossed that uh, finally the Boomers can firstly get their first medal and hopefully that they're playing in that uh, uh, gold medal game, whether it be against Team USA or France or whoever it may be. So as I say every week, uh, thank you to everybody who continues to download the podcast. If you can please jump on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating, that would be much appreciated. Also jump on Facebook and like the page there as we do post all the episodes. And as I've said over the last few episodes, if you've got some friends that are NBA fans and you could pass this uh, podcast on to them, that would be much appreciated. Till next week, we'll talk to you then. Thank you.